0: your host, Alec Crawford, founder and CEO of Artificial Intelligence Risk, Inc. And this is AI Risk Reward, a podcast about balancing the risk and reward using AI personally, professionally, and as a large organization. We will discuss hot topics such as, will AI take my job and make it better? When I ask ChatGPT work questions, is that even safe? From an ethical perspective, is it enough for big companies to anonymize private data before using it? Probably not. I'm discussing these issues with AI experts to answer burning questions and stay ahead of the curve on AI. I'd also like to give a shout out to our podcast producer and audio engineering team at Troutman Street Audio. You can check them out on LinkedIn. Welcome, everyone, to the AI Risk Reward podcast. And our very special guest today is Craig Lifshutz, managing director at Lyrical Partners and founding partner at Lytical Ventures. Welcome, Craig. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alec. Great to have you. Now, I noticed you got a BA in sociology from George Washington. How has that degree helped in your career?
1: It's a great question. <laughs> I've thought about that a bunch over the years. Um, sociology is obviously not the degree you think of when you think about going into business, particularly investing. But um, I, I'd say the one benefit was it allowed me to get a much broader view of the world and how societies operate. And it led to just a bunch of different courses of study and experiences that might I might not have experienced. I, I did a lot of work around um, the criminal justice system and around, um, you know, just different areas of society broadly, and so it gave me a good start in terms of perspective, in terms of like, you know, how different environments operate and, and the different, you know, kind of stratas of society. Cool. Has it informed how you look at AI at all? I've never thought about it that way before, but you know, I think it probably has. Right. My my view of AI is. Is very driven by um, my view of what's important to humanity, right? And what's important to society at large. And so I I suspect that, uh, you know, the things that I studied then probably did have an
0: impact. And NYU Stern Business School is consistently top 10. And of course, in the greatest city in the world where I grew up, what was the best thing about going there in the early 2000s?
1: Yeah, Stern was great. I, um, so, it's in the West village, right? What could be better than going to school in the West village. (laughs) Um, But it also going to Stern probably ties into not to, you know, jump all over, but going to Stern probably ties into one of the best pieces of advice I ever received, which was I was working and a partner at the investment firm that I was working at, um, was writing my recommendations for business school. And I was thinking about going back to business school full time. And he had gone to NYU and he pulled me into his office and he said, you're going to school part-time. Here's why. This is the thing you're going to do. Trust me, you'll thank me for it later. And um, and so it ended up being that NYU was the only school I applied to. I was very fortunate to get in um, and I did the part-time program. And it was an extraordinary experience and for a whole host of reasons. And, and I think you know, getting back to the point NYU, because of where it's located and the type of school it is, gives you access to a breadth of adjunct professors in different industries that I'm mean, clearly I'm biased but it's hard to get anywhere else in the world right it just sits in the center of not only finance but media telecom just anything that you could imagine you can touch while you're there so um, it was a fantastic experience and I'm still very close with
0: the, the group of folks that I went to school with Wow, that's so awesome! And and you mentioned earlier that your first job out of I, I guess undergrad was an assistant buyer at Bloomingdale's. Is that right? It was. I um I had taken a year off of college
1: to start um, like a t shirt shop, and so when I went back to finish school, um I got recruited mostly by retailers. So the job at Bloomingdale's was fascinating. I quickly learned what I didn't want to be doing for a living, which I'd say is relatively valuable, but I also uh, met my wife there. So it was a a short six-month stint at Bloomingdale's
0: that has turned into a uh, fortunately very long marriage. Well, wow, that's awesome! What a great story! And uh, you know, fun, funny on my side. Like that's where I would do my Christmas shopping because I lived just a few blocks away. So I probably ran into you at some point. Uh, and 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 now, which job did you take? What did you do right after you finished business school? So I was still working at the same investment
1: firm, and at the time that I started business school, I was really working on the client service side of the business. And as I was in business school, I. You know, parlayed that position into a position as an analyst on one of the portfolio teams. And so I just kept doing that. I just stayed. And that was, that was the beauty of, of being there part-time was that, um, I really never, it was, it was a lot of work obviously, but I never left work. So I was able to, you know, study on work simultaneously.
0: And so there wasn't a big,
1: um, you know, career shift afterwards, if you will.
0: Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Your, your marriage survived that. So that's good. Um, and, uh, and tell us more about your career journey to where you are now. Yeah. So I started off obviously at Bloomingdale's,
1: I was able to um, get a job really like on the customer service side of asset management, not doing anything particularly fancy. And I was able to just, you know, work hard. I parlayed that into, um, another a couple of jobs at the same place. I spent almost a decade there. And um, and then my, you know, the journey through business school allowed me to really become an analyst and, and work on a portfolio team. And then from there, I got recruited away to run the investment side of what was effectively a multifamily office. So I got a very broad view of all asset classes. That was, you know, really the first time in my career where I was able to, you know, look at things like real estate and private equity and venture capital in a much more focused way. I had been primarily an equity analyst up to that point. And from there, I joined a former colleague to run the business side of a special situations hedge fund, which was a fantastic experience. I joined in 2009, which um, anyone who has a recollection Ooh, of, that period a of time, perfect timing. Perfect timing. That, uh, it, was, it was a lovely, lovely time to do it. I did that for a number of years, we built it up successfully together. And then You know, a few years later, I sold my interest back to my partner who I'm still good friends with and started an e-commerce company, did that for a number of years. And when I was getting ready to sell it, I really seriously considered kind of moving to the West Coast and just going all in on technology and and leaving the investment world behind. And and I was fortunate in that one of my investors said, before you do that, um, I want you to meet my friend, Jeff Keswin, who's the founder of Lyrical Partners. And, you know, that was approaching a decade ago now. So I've had this, um, you know, and then along the way I was able to, you know, do a couple of different, you know, side projects and stuff. So I've been very, very, very fortunate in that I've been able to work with really fantastic people on stuff that I find interesting at, at various points along
0: the way. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, a lot of uh, life ends up being luck, you know, who you meet and get married to that person you chat with. And all of a sudden you've got a, a new 10 year career somewhere. That's 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 awesome. And you mentioned a book to me Against the Gods by Peter Bernstein, who's pretty famous in investing circles, but pitch the audience on the book. Why should we read it? Yeah. So for me, like, you know, that book at this point is Got to be, it probably was
1: published in the mid 90s, right? Mid, like mid 1990s. And so, like, that was the first, one of the first books that I read, you know, after college that really laid out the history of risk. Right? So, people were always talking about risk, but like we covered, I was a sociology major. I didn't really, I never, you know, I would found investing interesting, but had never done a deep dive into risk. And that book is incredibly manageable without having like a PhD in statistics. Right. And he really laid out the entire history of risk going, you know, back thousands of years, right. All the way through to, you know, what we think of as risk today and how we calculate it. And he also really laid out, and this kind of backs into the sociology stuff a little bit, you know, maybe more psychology than sociology, but the sort of frailties and how people think about risk. And how we're wired to think the wrong way about risk a lot of the times. And so it was just this sort of fantastic overview on, you know, not only how risk works, but how we got to where we are today. And it sort of sent me on this journey of, you know, reading, you know, dozens more books about risk. But I always think back to it, like, um, really fondly, because
0: it just gave me this fantastic foundation for getting excited about the topic. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, when I was running risk, I, everybody who started in, in my department, I'd make them read manias, panics and crashes, you know, hopefully the whole book, but at least the first chapter, because I love uh, that book. Yeah. Cause, uh, otherwise the, the worst thing to have when you're in risk management is a failure of imagination. And, uh, you know, when you read about like literally every, uh, bank in Mexico going bankrupt in the 1800s, you're like, Ooh, it can happen anyway. So, uh, both really good books. And um, so tell the audience a little bit about your your different roles today. Obviously, lyrical and lyrical ventures sound kind of similar, but they're doing different things. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. So so lyrical
1: partners was founded by Jeff Kesman a little over 15 years ago. And that's really an umbrella organization for all of Jeff's personal endeavors. And what's to his credit, what's come out of that is a number of asset management businesses. So there's Lyrical Asset Management, which is a deep value public equities business with a fantastic track record. There's an organization called Antheus, which owns um, lots of multifamily real estate in the Midwest. And then, you know, there's a lot of just what I'll call sort of direct deals that have been done off Jeff's personal balance sheet of which I've been fortunate to be involved with. And then there's Lytical Ventures. And the name and Lytical is really early stage investing in, you know, data analytics, cybersecurity, and AI. Um, and I think the, you know, the nice shortcut for thinking about that is anything that mine monetizes or secures enterprise data at the early stage is stuff that we look at. And so, you know, the creation of lyrical partners really enabled a lot of these other things to happen. And so lyrical, when we put it together, was somewhat of a play on words, it was just the mashing together of lyrical and analytical and we said, "Oh, this sounds fine." <laughs> that, that's how we ended up with Lytical Ventures, and that was about, you know,
0: almost you know six years ago at this point. Yeah, and and you mentioned to me earlier that Charlie Munger is a hero. Is a hero to me as well, and sadly, he just passed away. Uh, although he had a really good run, as we would say. So, what are what are some of his key teachings that that you believe in or follow?
1: Yeah. So. You know, one of the things that I think is just true entirely is that he talked a lot in various different ways. I'm sure there's dozens of quotes about this, but he never met a smart person that wasn't reading all the time. Right. Like he was just a big, big believer in learning and learning broadly. Right. Like these ideas of, Hey, you have to understand the foundations of science and math and history and psychology. Like, you know, he was very like, I mean, I think it's been referred to as lattice work thinking, but just really a believer in learning as much as you can and learning broadly. And that's always felt really natural to me. And, you know, having somebody who was like, yeah, this is the right way to do this. you had the level of success of, of Charlie was, is, is just extraordinary. But he also is very, like, he was very humble. Like, I mean, he talked a lot over the years about like knowing what you don't know is more useful than being brilliant. Right. And like, there's a lot of benefit to, um, you don't always have to do brilliant things. You could just avoid doing really dumb things and you can get a lot of traction from that. So I just, you know, he was a, he's really funny, right? Like if you, if you have like the opportunity to listen to the interviews and, and like read a lot of what's been, you know, written about him in the quotes, he's just a funny person with, um, unbelievable knowledge, like the, the level of, of wisdom that he acquired over the years. And I think he's also, I think less so now because, you know, sadly he just passed, but, um, you know, a lot of those years, you know, sitting next to Warren, you know, you could, you could lose some of the perspective on like what Charlie had accomplished, but he was just an amazingly accomplished guy who was wildly successful even prior to meeting Warren Buffett. Right. And so I just, I find him to be one of the more fascinating, humble characters in investing history. And,
0: uh, yeah, it's, it's a bummer that we're not going to be getting any more quotes. him. Yeah. Well, I love poor Charlie's almanac and, and he's got a knack for naming things like the Lollapalooza effect. You know, that's, (laughs) that is a, that's a good one. He's one of my favorites too. So tell us more about your investment style. Obviously you talked about, you know, early stage, you know, AI, cybersecurity, but how do you, how do you pick the, the winners and the losers? Yeah, so I think it's always important to also discern, like I, I have the good fortune of having touched different
1: parts of the investment world and, and getting to work on different businesses that are, you know, some are deep value equities and some are venture, right? And I think when you're talking about venture specifically, um, it's, it's obviously a slightly different approach, right? Um, and I don't remember candidly who, where the quote comes from, but I think early on, someone had given me, you know, a piece of advice was, you know, never forget what you're doing, meaning like, you know, don't let an investment turn into a trade, don't let a trade turn into an investment, right? Like it's really important to focus on what you're doing and why, right? So as it relates to like early stage venture, which is what I spend, you know, a great deal of time on, Oh, it's really about the people, right? Like you, you have to identify obviously the, the world that you're going to operate in and some people specialize, we specialize, we're hyper-focused on a particular area, but, um, but in the end, particularly at the early stage, so much of it is about the people. It's really about trying to partner with entrepreneurs who have big visions, who have, you know, tenacity and resilience and, you know, the ability to, to cope with uncertainty right? And who are coachable. There's just so many variables to it. I I think I have the good fortune and our whole team has this of having been founders, right? So we have lots of scar tissue, like we've been through this before. (laughs) We know, we know how much it hurts. Uh, We also know that, you know, it's, it's a long journey. It's not a straight line and up to the right. Right. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of bouncing around. So, and, you know, on the venture side, you know, from, if I were to try to like, you know, Sort of say, hey, look, what's the philosophy, it's really identifying a critical area that um, we're excited about, that we believe in, that has a you know meaningful secular t- trend attached to it, and then partnering with exceptional people to execute against that. Because ideas, I mean, this is such a cliche, but ideas are a dime a dozen, right? Execution is
0: everything, especially in startups. And so partnering with the right people is critical. Yeah, I've definitely seen the... Uh the dream with that execution, uh, problem there. And, you know, so VC is, is a, a tough business like any other, right? People are like, Oh, it's so awesome. You must be having so much fun. And you talked about, all right, we find this secular growth stories and we find the right people, but you've got to have an edge beyond that. Like what, tell, tell us a little bit more about what your edge might be there.
1: Yeah. Our focus, like our focus and our team and the network associated with that is definitely our edge, right? So we're only looking at things that mine, monetize, or secure enterprise data, right? We don't look at anything else. We get sent a lot of other deals, <laughs> but we don't look at them. And then if you look at the team and, and my partners, um, these are people with deep industry expertise and knowledge on this subject matter who have worked in these industries for a long time. So, and the network of advisors that we've built around that is similar, right? So it's this ability to understand the problem, but then also effectively source and win those deals, right? Because it's, and then help influence the outcomes. And that's really, if you think about venture and you think about what you have to do, you know, um, really effectively to do well in venture, right? You know, you have to source the right deals, you have to win those deals, and then you have to influence the outcomes. You have to do all three of them really well, and you need to partner with great entrepreneurs and advisors and just have a great community around you to do that. And we've spent a tremendous amount of time and effort you know, building a community that allows us to do that.
0: Yeah, I'm going to come back to one of the words you used earlier, which is coachable, which I think is so key. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with everyone who worked for me um, on, on, you know, for lack of a better word, training, right? Training programs and getting to learn new things. But that's a little different from finding an executive, uh, you know, a CEO or a a team of founders who they've obviously been really successful. They wouldn't be doing this. So tell tell us a little bit, bit more about Coachable. How do you figure that out?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's no perfect methodology for it. I know people like to talk about it as if there is some perfect methodology and, you know, there must be some magical ebook out there that will uh, tell you exactly what that is. Um, I think in reality, every person is different. And my experience has been people who are deeply curious and ambitious are often coachable, right? Cause you know, it depends on what you mean by coachable coachable to me is not telling someone what to do, right? That is not coaching. That's just sort of directing. Um, Coaching is you have a person who has, you know, I mean, it's, I, I, everybody always goes to sports metaphors and that's because they work pretty well, right? But if you have a lot of natural talent, you know, you might have a coach for various parts of your game and it's super valuable. So I think, you know, when you find an entrepreneur who's deeply, deeply technical, but knows that they don't understand corporate structure very well, right? They're going to be curious about it. And that curiosity and a desire to get it right will sort of lead them to inquiring and asking questions and looking for advice, right? So, you know, coachable is not people who are pushovers. They're typically just people who, you know, really have a desire to, to get it done correctly, right? And they're willing to look for that
0: information. Yeah. Like you said before, know what you don't know, Um, now at least in AI, like, you know, I've been, I've been in the financial markets for, for decades and in venture for less of that time, obviously, but I, I, I'm noticing that the A rounds just seem to be getting bigger, especially for AI companies. Does that, does that sound right to you? Is that a correct observation? I think
1: it's been correct over, you know, recent time, right? So it's definitely true. I think it also depends on, where in like, you know, AI, there's a lot going on in AI, right? And it depends on where you're investing and which data you're looking at, right? So, you know, hardware is its own thing, obviously, Um, large language models are its own thing. And then there's like column utilities around building these things. And, you know, without getting into all the technical detail, where you're investing in the ecosystem is going to dictate a lot as to the size of the rounds. But I think in general, um, valuations have gotten heated, to say it modestly, and the rounds have gotten larger. And and I think there's a number of reasons for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's certainly my observation. What, What do you think the sweet spot is in investing size currently for venture capital companies? Is it the seed space? Is it A round, B round? Where where do you think the best risk reward is right now? I'm going to be biased because
1: seed and A is what we do the most of, right? Um, And I think history would tell you that, you know, if you can do seed round investing really well, uh, the risk return profile is is exceptional. A lot of that comes down to skilled portfolio management, like how, how are you building the portfolio out? And, um, you know, what approach do you take there? And everybody has their own way of doing that. But I do, I I still feel really strongly that Seed and Series A um, create the most, you know, opportunities for large venture-like returns, right? And that's, that's going back to this point about what business are you in? um, You know, we're in the business of generating outsized returns, right? That's why people come to us. That's why we invest our own capital in our funds is this idea that, you know, you can, in fact, generate more, material
0: returns doing venture than you can in various other asset classes. Well, you talked about portfolio and earlier we talked about risk management. So how, how do you think about risk management in one of your portfolios or funds?
1: Yeah, so, you know, you know, the, I mean, you know this better than anybody, there's so much data out there as to what do you need to be diversified? How do you do this? Right? Um, you know, we tend to break it down across like not only the sort of data analytics and cybersecurity components of what we're doing, but across size as well, right? So in our portfolios, you know, you'll typically see us do, you know, 20 deals plus or minus two or three. Um, We think that gives us enough diversity that we can, you know, be safely diversified, but also still focus on those companies and give them the attention that's required and then get the opportunity to really put your foot on the pedal when things are working, That, that is, that's ultimately, you know, the, how the math of venture works, right? Um, when things are working, you want to effectively press your bets and continue to, you know, to run with those companies. And so that number we found is a good solid, you know, place to sit. It gives you comfort that you're not, you know, way over allocated to something, but you're also not just building uh, you know, it's like, there's a spray or pray concept in certain parts of venture, right? Which, which I'm sure you've heard before, and that's just not our approach. We like to kind of have our hands around it and understand, you know, what all these companies are up to.
0: Yeah, I can understand being involved in in 20 companies when you see venture capital firms with a thousand investments. You got to scratch your head and go, "How are they helping those thousand companies this week?" Right? That yeah. seems that seems tough. Anyway, so. Um, So what you mentioned, one of your investments was actually a restaurant. So I was, I was intrigued. Uh, how did you end up investing in Kings of Kobe in New York city? Yeah. So to be clear, that is not a lytical ventures investment or
1: a lyrical asset management investment. That is just a testament to Jeff Keswin's um, willingness to back, um, entrepreneurs and give them an opportunity we um, so our partners in in Lytical ventures one day this is many years ago um came over to uh our offices and said hey we found this new um, hot dog and burger place you guys should come check it out with us which totally randomly we're like free that day and we said sure so we went and we met um, the guy at the time who owned it and ended up building a relationship with him over time and he had a much bigger vision for what he was trying to build and he's a very creative guy who just happens to be, um, you know, a great partner and good human being. And, um, you know, Jeff was very supportive and said, Hey, if you can, um, you can structure a deal that makes sense for everybody involved, um, I'd like to give this entrepreneur a chance to chase his dream. And so that was, um, you know, much more of a lyrical partners, um, you know, adventure.
0: That sounds cool. And then, and More broadly, how do you think about uh, going back to AI? How do you think about ethics around AI and investing in AI? For example, would you invest in a company that could use personal data to find and sway swing voters towards a political candidate, for example?
1: Yeah, it's such an important topic. And I have given it quite a bit of thought. I don't know that anyone has given it enough thought, right? So I don't believe good investing is the kind of investing where you're investing in things that manipulate people. Right. I think it's the same thing with like, you can have strong opinions, like moral opinions about these things, but it's also pretty clear that like, you know, even if you look outside of venture, like investing in products that kill people is just bad business, right? Like you don't have to be a saint to recognize it's a bad idea to do bad things to your customers. Right. So I would say, You know, conceptually, I think manipulating democracy is a bad thing and I would be much more intrigued by companies that were doing things to secure people's private data and really, you know, make sure that our system continues to operate the way it's designed to operate.
0: Yeah. I also understand you've produced a couple of independent movies, like how how does that help uh, you think about venture capital investing? Um,
1: that's good. It's an interesting tie in. Um, one of the things that's interesting about independent films is that you're outside of the studio system, right? So I joke around sometimes and I say, I learned more producing independent films than I did starting companies. And, and the reason is that if you think about indie film production and you think about just film production generally, and a lot of people, while they love movies, haven't really thought about all of the different departments involved in, in making a film right? Like a, making a film is a very physical endeavor, right? You've got like lighting and cameras and, you know, sound and all of these things that, um, as a producer, you are not particularly skilled at, right? So like you might have the idea, you might have the vision, you might acquire the property and you know, the story that you want to tell, but you're still going to have to hire, you know, a cinematographer, you have to hire sound people, you have to hire makeup people and hair people. Clearly, if anyone's looking at this, I don't know a lot about hair people, right? There's all of these things that um, you have to really do well without having personal experience doing, right? And that is what a lot of startup life ends up being, particularly at the growth stage, right? It's how do you manage people who have deep expertise and things that matter a lot for the outcome but you haven't spent your career doing. So you really have to understand people and what motivates them and the kinds of folks that you can work with effectively. And with a movie, it's also similar in that the minute you start rolling, you're burning money. You're just instantly burning money. And you have a deadline and you have to meet that deadline and you have to hit that milestone. Right. And then you're going into this next phase of it, which is you've made this thing, but now you have to market this thing and you've got to get people to buy it and you've got to get, you know, people to look at it, you know, more broadly. And I once read this great quote, which was, um, you know, do you know what the difference between a film and a movie is? And, and the joke is a film is something like, you know, you made and you watch on your couch with four of your friends, people go to the movies right? Movies are things that lots of people see. And, you know, the same thing, you know, with a startup, you might be able to build a piece of technology that works, but you still need to go to market. You still need to get it out into the world and you have to execute on all that. And, um, as odd as it might seem on some level, there's a lot of similarities to those processes.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm, I'm curious what you think the next big movie about AI might be. I mean, I've already seen all the Terminator movies. (laughs) <laughs> wow yeah you
1: know sadly i i think that the movies we see about ai probably won't be um they probably won't be charming that said i think that ai is going to bring us a lot of really really amazing things and hopefully that will eventually lead to some some movies with less dramatic uh, outcomes but i think in the near term um what we're going to see is probably closer to terminator than not
0: yeah i i I agree it's 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 much more fun to make you know scary movies about ai than uh than fun movies about ai anyway so uh what do you think the biggest threat from ai will be over the next 10 years And let's constrain that to the united states rather than the world because that that gets even trickier yeah that's um That makes
1: it a little bit easier to answer. I think the thing that we have to do and which we've started doing a little bit is taking seriously that it's here to stay. It's going to get utilized. We do need to regulate it on some level and those regulations need to be done collaboratively, not only with legislators, but with industry people right? People who really understand how this tech works and what it's capable of both good and bad and how to regulate for that. Um, regulation in the U S has a funny history and, and you've been around the investing world a long time. So, you know, how this tends to go, it tends to happen very slowly. The problem now is that, um, this is probably the greatest mismatch ever in terms of the development of capabilities versus the timeline, the legislative, Right. So I do think that there are some well-intended people who recognize that, um, you know, the cat's out of the bag and they have to take this very, very seriously in terms of how it impacts the public. But it's definitely one of the bigger challenges. I think the scientific community is going to continue to develop um, really phenomenal technology and we're going to see that go really, really, really fast. And so there's this idea that you're going to need a lot of thoughtful people who understand it
0: figuring out you know what's okay to implement and what isn't yeah I mean, i've looked at a lot of the uh not just the regulations in the u.s and europe but you know some of the white papers and the stuff from nist and things like that and we're just not even close to what we're going to need to do over the next couple of years i agree anyway i'm going to switch gears to the advice section um, so what advice do you have for founders yeah
1: So every founder is different and I feel like they all require, you know, going back to your coaching thing, they all require a little bit of different advice. Right. But, um, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, be realistic as crazy as that might sound. Right. So people always say founders have massive visions and they want to do big things. and, And I think that's great. And I think people should have massive visions. Right. And they should try to change the world. And I'm, you know, really in support of that. Um, but, when, and I guess I'm, I'm code like sort of couching this a little bit in founders who want venture capital and less so in founders broadly, because it's important to remember most businesses that get created in the world are not venture backed, right? Like venture backed businesses are a very particular thing. And so, um, I should probably say, I mean, if you want me to go in that direction in terms of like, for yeah. Yeah, let's you talk about venture, get, back, venture sure. backing, you know, that's, that's a different sort of animal. And I, and I think when it, that goes back to my point about being realistic is, you know, study who you're going to approach, right? Like know who you're approaching. Um, every venture capital firm is not created equal. They have partners that are all different. They have different backgrounds. They have different areas of interest, different stages. Um, It's always a bummer when you get approached by people who, you know, are probably really smart and might have a good idea and are totally wasting their time barking up the wrong tree, right? It's like, if somebody approaches one of my lytical partners with the next great idea for, you know, a consumer product, they can't help, right? That's not their world. They're not going to be able to do that. And that happens, sadly, more than you might think, right? Um, And then the other thing just broadly, once you're committed to doing it. And I I kind of going back to the movie thing, I I always sort of like, um, say there's another similarity here, which is, you know, know yourself. And if you can be talked out of doing it, you probably shouldn't, right? Being a founder is really hard. I loved it. I love, you know, everything about starting companies, but it's hard, right? There's easier ways to make money. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons that people shouldn't do it. So the people that do, should really know themselves and know why they're doing it and and have a passion for what they're going to do, right? And if you have that and you're, you know, you wake up every day, you know, committed to that, it gets a lot easier despite
0: all of the challenges associated with it. Yeah. That's, that's, some that's some good advice. I mean, I've, I've met hundreds of founders and they're all amazing and passionate people, but obviously. You know not all of them are ready for venture capital um and speaking of investments like how how are you um tell the audience how you're getting investment ideas in your current role right so you know we set out i'm going to talk mostly about lytical
1: right is that you know our goal and fortunately it feels like we've been successful at this is you know you can look for needles in haystacks it's very very difficult right um our objective has always been to build a magnet and the idea being that if entrepreneurs and advisors and the ecosystem knows that you're focused solely on these things and you're able to make decisions quickly and effectively in your space, you tend to attract a lot of deals. So, you know, I mentioned like, you know, one of my partners, Lucas Nelson, has been, you know, working in cybersecurity for really the vast majority of his career, like since he left college, both in operating roles and in investing roles. Right. So, you know, he was heavily involved with Black Hat and Defcon, like he's somebody who is deeply entrenched in that ecosystem. And so, you know, we get deals via our relationships, right? Um, that's sort of how it always works. And that's through all of our relationships. It's through the relationships at Lyrical, it's through the people, you know, Jeff and I have built relationships over the years, uh, Graham and Steve, our other partners, it's the same thing. They come from different parts of technology and investing, and they have deep networks that they've maintained. And, you know, the advisors that we work with are, you know, really engaged with us. And so they see a lot of like early tech, right? Like so you have, you know, CISOs who see things faster. And so, you know, for the stage that we invest in, we like to see things early, right? We often see things before they've been widely adopted. And so staying close to people in your ecosystem is is a big
0: part of that. Great advice. And turning back to AI, how do you think corporate and world leaders can use AI for good? There's so much good. I mean, I think
1: people have to be less focused on all of the fear around it and spend a little bit more time thinking about the good things they can do with it. Like I just, there's something I saw on television over the weekend where, um, there's a study going on, I think it's at Stanford, hopefully I don't get it wrong, where they've developed a technology that allows people with ALS to have their brain waves read and then communicated, right? So the the, the best technology that had been around that was they had done some eye tracking a while back, right? Because ALS is a horrible, debilitating disease, right? And just the abil- one of the worst things that happens to people is, is that They are totally functional, but have lost their ability to communicate, right? And so they're using a whole bunch of technologies, but AI is playing a role in that in order to translate um, thought patterns into words, right? And so you look at something like that, and and my hope would be, at least with my take, is like, there's you can get really motivated by that, right? Like, there is there's a lot of good that can be done in the world if you focus on the capabilities of these technologies rather than just all the scary stuff. Right. And, you know, and back to your point about, you know, ecosystems and and democracy and, and, you know, like voting rights and stuff, like these tools can be tools of defense as well as offense. Right. And a lot of times, and I think this applies to investing and, and, you know, governance and and all sorts of things is that like, it goes back to being realistic about what you're dealing with. Right. Like taking a, a cold, hard look at what can these things do and what are the problems we're trying to solve? And that's sort of how we approach the investing side also which is that um technology is great it's super fun to play with especially like if you're a big tech nerd like you know my partners are fantastic tech nerds right like we're all i joke around all the time it's like our nerds are brilliant and and you know we all love that stuff which is why we're doing it right but in the end when you're investing in things and, and this is similarly when you're trying to solve problems you know, what we really start from is what business problem is this technology being used to solve, right? Like, how is this helping people? Because people are the ones that ultimately either do the work or make the decisions. And, you know, even for a corporation who arguably is just trying to drive profitability, um, understanding what problem you're solving and why you're uniquely equipped to solve that problem is probably more valuable than anything else. Right, a lot of times people are just making toys, if you will. Right, there are very cool like tricks that you can do with tech, but you might not be solving an important problem. And so there's a, there's a lot of value in sort of taking a step back, taking the time to really understand what this stuff is capable of, and then applying that to things you
0: see as meaningful challenges and problems. Yeah, I'm constantly telling founders like you've got to fall in love with the problem. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, because a lot of times they fall in love with the solution and they don't know what the problem is they're trying to fix, which is a problem. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's yeah. It, it, there's nothing better you can do for a
1: business person than take away their pain.
0: And what advice would you have for the CEO of, let's say, an industrial company about how they should use AI?
1: I think it's very similar to what we just talked about. It's unlike you know, they each have their own problems, right? Like industrial companies in particular have, you know, to their credit, I mean, some of the people who manage these companies are very smart on a whole slew of topics, right? Because software is great. And we all love it. And it's a lot of fun to talk about and see it built. But, you know, industrial companies where you're sourcing raw materials, Right. You've got an entire supply chain, you've got supply chain security. There's just so many variables. Right. And so having somebody, and and I think you'll see this over time. Like if you go back even 10 years ago, like the idea of like the, of a CISO sitting on a board, right? Like having a security person sitting on like a corporate board seemed crazy. Right now, all of a sudden it's like, people are like, no, 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 we have to have this security people in the room all the time. Right. I think over time you're going to see this happen, you know, where you have people who are more adept at the implementation of what, you know, we refer to whatever it's be it machine learning AI at making these companies more efficient. Right. And so if you're a CEO, I don't practically know that you're going to have the time for you to become the expert on this stuff. Right. But in terms of your staffing and in terms of how you organize the organization, and then I think there's just a lot that goes on around, you know, messaging, particularly at big companies, right? Which is, is this going to be acceptable? Like, are we going to support this to grow and develop our business or are we going to be afraid of it? Right. And I think that people who are, end up being really successful in those industries at least utilizing this tech are going to find really solid messaging around No, we believe in this as technology. We believe in software, but we're gonna use it our way, responsibly, ethically, and effectively. And we're gonna have processes in place for doing that, but we're not gonna run from it, right? We're not gonna say, oh, it was, you know, we're just gonna keep doing it this way. And so building a culture around like the utilization of this stuff, the right way, I think is one of the most important things, you know, a CEO of a large industrial could probably do.
0: Yeah. And turning back to uh, venture capital, you know, I, I, I've been telling your parents who come to me and go, Oh, my son or daughter wants to do something in finance. Like what should they do? And I, I, for, for 20 years, I've been saying venture capital or private equity. That's uh, that's where they should go. But how about some practical advice for, let's say students in college or, you know, they want to eventually get into venture capital or private equity. Like what, what should they do? What's the, what's the, the track there? So i think they're very different tracks right private
1: equity is um you know you're looking at businesses where the the financial aspects of it are really material right where you know you know i wasn't an investment banker so it's hard for me to say hey you know go become an investment banker then go work in private equity that's a well-worn path Um, the reality is if you want to work in private equity that path probably still works pretty well um, and the reason is you learn a lot about building robust financial models, and you know how industries work, right? Venture tends to be a little bit different, particularly early stage venture, because not that the financials don't matter, because they do, but in the early stages, the financials are only a small component of what's happening, right? You're really trying to um, create, oftentimes create an industry or you know, create and establish a piece of technology that's never been seen before. So it's a different skill set. And I think you have to, you know, have some sense of which of those you find to be most interesting. The other thing too, is that I think most people end up in venture a little bit later in their career. So it's not common for somebody to just come right out of college and go work in venture capital. Because in the end, venture capital is still really about building companies. And it's mostly about building technology companies. So you see a lot of folks go work at a technology company, right? Like if you go work your way up over a period of years to be the head of sales for a software company, and you've learned a lot over the years, that might position you better than some other folks to you know, work in venture. Similarly, if you start companies and sell them, that's a lot of the people that you find working in venture. So venture has a, I'd say m- the most unique path in that it's not very specific, right? Like it's it, there, people get to it various different ways. And I think, you know, you talked to lots of venture capitalists, I suspect if you talk to a hundred you get a hundred different stories and none of them are, or there might be some commonality, right? You do need to understand how, you know, accounting works, right, you need to understand basic financials, but the, the world of venture looks different than private equity. And um, it's important to understand that also, like which of those things is more exciting to you, right? Being on the bleeding edge of technology
0: or you know, buying cash flowing companies and improving them. Yeah, totally great. Awesome, so now uh, we're heading into our lightning round. It's the last few minutes where I, I mentioned different things and ask if you think they're underrated or overrated and why. So we'll start off with the Hawaiian Islands, Kauai, underrated or overrated? It is impossible
1: to uh, overrate Kauai. It could be the most beautiful of the Hawaiian islands.
0: It was, yeah, we were, we were there uh, earlier this year. I thought it was uh, amazing as well. The TV show, The Gilded Age, underrated or overrated? I think
1: underrated. Um, it's, it's fascinating. One of the elements of the show is how, you know, old school industrialists operated in that period of time. And uh, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Awesome. Wagyu beef. Underrated or overrated? Um, generally underrated. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, uh, there's difference in American Wagyu and Japanese Wagyu, but I'd say broadly there's a lot you can do with it, and it's underappreciated.
0: IBM Watson, underrated or overrated? Wow, that one's tough. Um, how about appropriately rated? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, New, New York City uh, diner restaurants, meaning, you know, greasy spoons, not the people going to, them. Uh, totally underrated. <laughs> Ron Chernow as an author, underrated or overrated? Um, well, he's widely celebrated, but I would
1: still say underrated. Um, if you, you his biographies are just, um, they're, they're fantastic. Um, I, I think that, you know, he does these deep dives into folks where, you really get to see everything, like warts and all, right? So you don't come away thinking, hey, these people lived like perfectly charmed lives. You really come away thinking, wow, that person is wildly accomplished, but it wasn't easy. There are a lot of bumps in the road and um, and it gives you a really complete picture of, of how
0: folks got to where they did. And so uh, definitely underrated. Existential threat to humanity from AI, underrated or overrated? Oh. I think a little like over
1: indexed. Is that a fair, I know I'm, I'm not answering it precisely, but like, close uh, enough,
0: close (laughs) enough. New York city, yellow taxis instead of Ubers underrated or overrated. I think as an experience, probably
1: underrated. Like if you're not a New Yorker and you want part of like the old school, New York experience, it's an experience, right? Um, I will confess, I don't take them often anymore, but, um, but if I walk out of the
0: building and there's one there, I'll, I'll totally hop in. It's it's an experience to have. Yeah. And and don't forget no surge pricing. Exactly. (laughs) Running a marathon, underrated or overrated? Overrated. (laughs) And lastly, Marlon Brando as an actor, underrated or overrated? So I, I, I can't speak to the entire body of work, but if we're just talking The
1: Godfather, I would have to say uh, underrated, even though he was wildly celebrated. It's, uh, it's probably one of the most fantastic performances in movie history.
0: Well, Craig, this has been awesome. This has been Craig Lipschutz. He is the managing director at Lyrical Partners and a founding partner at Lytical Ventures. Craig, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Alec are listening to the AI Risk Reward Podcast, with your host, Alec Pufford. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts, production and sound engineering by Troutman Street Audio. You can find them on LinkedIn. Please like, subscribe, and comment.